Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Beyond Prisons podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sonnenstein, and today my co-host Kim Wilson and I spoke with author, educator, and activist Johanna Fernandez about a recent incident in which a Pennsylvania corrections officer perpetrated a hoax on supporters of Mumia Abu-Jamal by claiming he had been hospitalized for COVID-19. Our conversation extends beyond this awful incident as we discuss American attitudes about violence and safety, the weaponization of health and concern against prisoners, and more. We also talk about a teach-in and other events taking place online this weekend, the weekend of April 24th, 2020, in support of Mumia and other political prisoners. You can find links and more information about those events in the episode notes. Johanna Fernandez is the author of The Young Lords, A Radical History, a history of the Puerto Rican counterpart of the Black Panther Party. She teaches 20th century U.S. history and the history of social movements in the Department of History at Baruch College. Dr. Fernandez's recent research and litigation has unearthed an arsenal of primary documents now available to scholars and members of the public. Her Freedom of Information lawsuit against the NYPD led to the recovery of the lost Hanshu files, the largest repository of police surveillance records in the country, namely over 1 million surveillance files of New Yorkers compiled by the NYPD between 1954 and 1972, including those of Malcolm X. She is the editor of Writing on the Wall, Selective Prison Writings of Mumia Abu-Jamal. With Mumia Abu-Jamal, she co-edited a special issue of the journal Socialism and Democracy titled The Roots of Mass Incarceration in the U.S., Locking Up Black Dissidents and Punishing the Poor. Among others, her awards include the Fulbright Scholars Grant to the Middle East and North Africa, which took her to Jordan, and a National Endowment for the Humanities Fellowship of the Scholars in Residence Program at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture of the New York Public Library. Professor Fernandez is the writer and producer of the film Justice on Trial, the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal. She directed and co-curated Presente the Young Lords in New York, an exhibition in three New York City museums cited by the New York Times as one of the year's top 10 best in art. Her mainstream writings have been published internationally from Al Jazeera to the Huffington Post, and she's appeared in diverse range of print, radio, online, and televised media, including NPR, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and Democracy Now! Fernandez is the recipient of a BA in Literature and American Civilization from Brown University and a PhD in U.S. History from Columbia University. One more thing before we get to the interview, please follow and like the Beyond Prisons podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find all episodes as well as resources on supporting prisoners during the pandemic at beyond-prisons.com. You can support the show at beyond-prisons.com donate or on Patreon at patreon.com beyondprisons. And if you can't donate but you want to help us out, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show where you listen to it and tell a friend about us. Thank you to everyone out there donating to keep the show going and help us bring insightful episodes like this one into the world. We really appreciate it. Without further ado, here's our conversation with Johanna Fernandez. First of all, welcome and uh, thank you for being here today. I wanted to start off by basically asking you to tell us a little bit about the situation that happened, was it a week ago now, a little more than a week ago, with Mumia Abu-Jamal? So first of all, thanks for having me on the show and thank you for dedicating your time and energy 
and spirit to one of the most important assignments of our time, which is to decarcerate. What happened last week was devastating and cruel and definitely a reflection of the danger that people of color are in day in and day out in the prisons where white supremacists uh, have become guards, essentially. And we know this. There have been numerous articles and even FBI investigations which have determined that within the institutions of repression of society, in the prisons and in the police, we see a growth of ultra-right neo-Nazi forces. So last week, there was a Twitter storm organized by the movement to bring Mumia home. And it invited folks in the world to call the prison to demand, I don't even remember what, safety, the release of all prisoners over the age of 50, as um, is the demand of release aging people from prison, RAP, but also IWOC and many other uh, groups across the country. But this Twitter storm and phone zap focused on the case of Umi Abu-Jamal. So one of our supporters called the prison, engaged the guard in a conversation, and the guard said, oh, I think you need to know that Mumia was violently ill. He was rushed to the hospital and he had a terrible headache and could not breathe. And so she called the person at the University of California, Santa Cruz, a young undergraduate who's been anchoring some of this work and who's been working on the case since God was a boy, since he was a child, uh, because his parents are involved in the case. So he knows everyone in the movement. She calls him and he calls the prison. You know, this is a young man, 21 maybe, very responsible. He calls the prison back and and asks the guard, who, the same person who picks up, I don't know if it was a guard, but a prison official who picks up the phone and continues to ask the guard about the health of Mumia Abu-Jamal. And the guard says the same thing, that, that Mumia fell ill and he was rushed to the hospital and he appeared to have COVID-19 symptoms. And... Uh, that's all he knew. The, the young man, Santiago Alvarez, recorded the call. Wow. And so he calls me, and I'm in my class. Mm. I'm teaching on Zoom. And mm -hmm. my phone is running, you know, is, is ringing off the hook. Ring and ring and ring. But I'm on a Zoom call with my students, so I don't want to pick up the call. Finally, I pick up the call. At the very end of class, I, uh, I end my class early and um, 
he's agitated and I'm agitated because my, my uncle just died last <laughs> Sunday of COVID-19. And Mumia has cirrhosis of the liver because the prison didn't treat Mumia's hepatitis C crisis fast enough until we sued them. And so when he tells me this, I was a hot mess. I couldn't speak. I was re-traumatized because the last time Mumia fell ill and was taken to uh, on an, in, an, in an emergency vehicle, I happened to be the person who visited that morning. Mm -hmm. And I visited that morning because I knew there was something wrong and there was a struggle in the movement, a fight. I'm now spilling the beans, but mm -hmm. someone like Pam Africa was like, no, you can't go. Mumia is very private. If he's not calling us, it's for a reason. And I was like, no, I don't think so. I think there's something else going on. And literally I defied the order orders of, of the matriarch of the movement. And I went to visit him because I knew, and I asked an attorney to come with me because I knew there was something wrong. When I get to the, to the prison, the guard who is taking visitors that morning is one I recognized. He tells me that I can't go in and I start arguing with him because he was the same guard who didn't allow me to visit Mumia last time I was there to visit for some random reason, uh, because he wanted to essentially. So I, you know, I immediately get riled up and he feeling guilty says, no, no, it's not that I don't want to let you in or that there's anything wrong with your visit. It's that it's that he was just taken to the hospital mm -hmm. this is three or four years ago. So yeah. when I get the, and, and of course, Mumia was at that store. He fainted. His uh, blood sugar was at literally 600 and something. 700 apparently is lethal. Um, this is four years ago or five years ago. Yeah. He had um, swelling of the brain. Uh, he was on that store. And... Mm. So when Santiago tells me that Mumia has been taken in an ambulance with COVID-19 symptoms, he can't breathe and he has a terrible headache. I'm like, oh my God, he's not going to survive this. Yeah. Um, and uh, immediately I send a message to the movement and, uh, and I put out a, a call on Facebook and I literally begin to reorganize my morning because it's clear that we're going to go to Pennsylvania. We're going to show up wherever he's been taken. Um, so then, uh, of course, we call a Zoom meeting and, and we go through what happened with more care and it appears that um, this was a hoax. And by this time, we had already talked to the lawyers who called the Department of Corrections. Their lawyers talked to our lawyers and someone was asked to go see if Mumia was in his cell. And in fact, he was in his cell. Hmm. 
So what I thought, well, first of all, I was like, okay, so the joke's on me, clearly, because I, I was the one who got the call, who flipped out and sent out a message to the movement saying that Mumia had been hospitalized and then put it on Facebook. And that was retweeted and reposted hundreds of times. Yeah. So now we had to figure out as a movement what to do. And to tell you the truth, the only thing that came to my mind as I was sitting there listening to Mumia's attorneys and to the conversation about what had happened, the only thing that came to mind was that Pennsylvania is the site of the rise of the second clan in the 1920s. Mm -hmm. And I visit Mumia and other prisoners uh, at SCI Mahanoy. I visited numerous prisoners at SCI Green in Western Pennsylvania. And all of the white guards looked like white supremacists, neo-Nazis. When Mumia was um, rushed to the hospital three or four years ago, I happened to be there, as I said previously, and I convinced... Um, the lawyer who was with me to go to the hospital with me. And I convinced her to sneak into the hospital and figure out where Mumia was being held. He was definitely being held in an ICU. And for some reason, I know hospitals. I grew up in New York. My mother was hospitalized for three months when I was a kid and I couldn't get into the hospital. This is a random story. I couldn't get into the hospital legally. So I snuck into the hospital for three months to visit my mother while she was um, interned during that period. So I, I literally convinced the lawyer, let's just figure it out. I, I, I'll know how to find the ICU. We found the ICU and the guards who were who were outside of Mumia's room were all tagged up head to toe and they looked like neo-Nazis. So yeah. this is, this is what I thought about that. This is, this is the condition um, that, disproportionately black and Latino uh, men and women have to endure day in and out in um, the far corners of states, racist states like Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. Texas, Delaware, um, Delaware, Delaware. Yeah, I, I mean it's it's uh, it's 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 startling. It's it's cruel. It's marginal behavior. It's sick. Yeah, it yeah. shocks the conscience. Really, it shocks the conscience. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was I was on the second Zoom call. I wasn't in, on the first call, but I was on the second one. And uh, you and I are. are friends on Facebook. So I, you know, I saw your, your tweet that night and I went to bed or your, your post that night. And I went to bed cause I saw it pretty late. And I said, Oh God, you know, I said, all right, I'll, 
get up in the morning because I was exhausted and, you know, pick it up from there. And the first thing I did was go back to your Facebook page. And then I saw the the second where it turned out to be a hoax. And I was just like, when I say livid, oh God, it was mm-hmm. unbelievable. Just like the the feeling is just unbelievable because, you know, one of the things that we've been fighting for and it one of our demands is for transparency and for accurate information from departments of corrections around the country and been adamant about that. And we have plenty of experience from having done similar work with the national prison strike a couple of years ago, asking for transparency, asking for accurate information, because we know that we're not getting accurate information, whatever line that they're feeding us is their PR spin. And I'm looking at this and again, thinking about and what's happening in Delaware as well as everywhere else around the country. It was just, it like words fail, right? Mm-hmm. Like I have a lot of words. Um, <laughs> fuck is one of those words. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. God darn it, damn it, shit. All these other words that, you know, um, it, it just it came to mind. But it, it's just the the frustration, right? Like you have to be, I, I, I can't even, I, I don't even want to talk about what kind of person you have to be to want to do that to someone and to many someones because they knew the impact that that would have on mm-hmm. everyone connected to Mumia and to all other prisoners as well. Because I think that the message was not just, we can fuck with you because Mumia is here, but we can fuck with anybody else that we want to as well. And that's how I took that. Um, Deployment of capricious power. It's, uh, yeah, I I mean, I don't even know what to say. You're right. It, It defies description because the feeling is enraging, but you sink into a profound powerlessness that we exist at the whim of crazy white supremacists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful for the comments that both of you just made. I think one of the things that I, I wanted to raise here and that you both raised before I even had the chance is that, you know, Mumia is a, is a very high profile prisoner, right? He has been, you know, my entire life. Um, But this sort of thing is not like an isolated incident per se. It's not sort of an individual case. You know, it got a lot of attention, but I can say from, you know, my own work anecdotally speaking with incarcerated families, and I'm sure Kim, you know, you've had this experience with, with your sons is that this is just sort of part of the, of the, the terror that is part of incarceration. I mean, this sort of harassment, this disregard for people's feelings about their loved one on the inside and their worry and their concern and their their anxiety. It's just part of the terror that they, you know, just feel free to impose on a whim. Like you said, that capricious wielding of power. I wanted to to sort of pull that out and and not let anybody sort of feel like, oh, well, this is just a horrible, isolated incident where they pulled this prank on Mumia and his supporters. Like, no, this is 
a very visible sort of thing that we see happen on a daily basis uh, for people who are incarcerated. And so I didn't know if if there was anything else to add to that or if if either of you wanted to share your perspectives or experiences with that. But um, I just wanted to raise that and, and make sure that we didn't individualize this too much because I, I think it is symptomatic of that larger terror of the institution. Well, Ramsey Orta, who's been um, moved around from prison to prison in the state of New York, uh, is currently in um, in a horrific situation. The guards at the last facility he was moved to essentially told him over and over again that they were going to infect him with COVID-19. And he now is in the infirmary with 105 fever and very ill. Um, And in fact, I'm the host of a morning show uh, here in New York City on WBAI, which is part of the Pacifica Network. And uh, we've interviewed uh, Deja, his his fiance, who's uh, who's also ill with lupus, and she's she's devastated, and. Um, we interviewed her on the on on the on the matter, and we're gonna screen uh, and we're gonna air the interview tomorrow. And I've not heard that interview, but I've heard that it's it's harrowing. This is the end of, um, or or the last, not the end, but the last chapter of a long, long journey of of harassment and repression uh, and indignities that Ramsey Orta has had to endure. Uh, And as you were listening, audience probably knows Ramsey Orta was the friend of Eric Garner who filmed the strangulation of his friend in Staten Island. And he has been harassed his family has been um, targeted, uh, threatened, his mother threatened with imprisonment um, ever since, ever since. And he's due to be released this summer. But his family and his partner fear that that, that might not happen because the state and the vindictive police force here in New York is they're ready to draw blood. So, so, and, and of course, Ramsey Orta is a political prisoner, but, um, but, you know, prisons are about absolute control. We know this. They um, are about um, stripping prisoners and their families of any shred of dignity they might have it, it, there's an attempt at that at least and of course the 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 folks who who are drawn many of the folks who are drawn to this to this work are 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 marginal people um i mean they're overseers literally and so yes i agree with you that this is not an isolated incident with political prisoners like mumia abu jamal or ramsey orta this is 
this is par for the course in uh, in prisons, and it's it's the um, the nasty belly uh, of the beast that that we don't see. I mean, we only hear about these things from our loved ones, and I think what's difficult is that part of the work of fighting against hyper-incarceration of people of color is about bearing witness to, to the horror, to the terror. But there's an enormous amount of anxiety I feel in just talking about this to people who don't have a relationship with this system of terror. Because it sounds, it sounds like hyperbole, right? Yeah. But it's not. But it's it's how many of our people live day in and day out. Completely agree. I think that combined with the the stigma and the shame that a lot of people feel about talking about having someone in prison, that there's also the fear of, well, if I say something publicly, then my person will be retaliated against. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we spend a lot of time thinking about and talking about with with folks, because I think that the invisibility of people makes it easy for them, easier for them to get away with different things, right? And that when they know that someone on the outside is watching or many someones are watching, they may not always behave differently, but they know that there's going to be, you know, consequences, that there's going to be calls, that there's going to be actions, that we're going to call for people to be fired, that we're going to, you know, constantly call the warden's office or the governor or whoever, um, that there's going to be car protests, you know, now in the age of COVID, that's part of what we have available to us and petitions and, and what have you. But I think that getting getting folks to that point is is a difficult process, in part because the nature of this entire system is to make sure that we're all disconnected in a lot of ways. So if you don't come at this work because you've been in a movement or you've, you know, somehow part of some movement that brings you into this work, there's not a there's not a a way to basically say, oh, I have a loved one in prison. This is who I call now that, you know, this is my my reality. And I think that that's something that in the early days, I just, I wanted to just be alone. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I didn't have the emotional wherewithal for a number of different reasons. And, you know, I've talked about them on, on this podcast before, but, you know, I, I just, I wanted to be alone. That didn't mean that I wasn't doing work for them. And I knew that the work that I was doing for them was also having an impact on other people on the inside in terms of changing the material conditions for them, even if it was in a small way, you know, and for example, um, my youngest son um, gets really bad eczema. And when it flares up or he has really bad eczema, when it flares up, it's really, really bad. And when he was first uh, incarcerated, he was in a cell with, I think, like four or five other people, a cell that only supposed to hold two people. 
So they gave him a thin mattress and he was on the floor. They claimed to have, quote unquote, lost all of his, you know, clothing in the laundry. Right. So he didn't have clean clothes for two weeks for some for anybody that is unhygienic. Right. For people in, you know, sharing a cell with several other people, that is just fucking gross. Um, and unhygienic and all the other things. Anyway, he'd been calling me or trying to call me because they, they limited the amount of calls and, you know, fast forward. And like I said, this many years ago now, I finally sat down and I composed a letter and I sent that letter to the, the warden, the governor and a number of other, you know, officials. Right. And I said, this is going, I'm going to escalate this, right. That this isn't, this is the first step. So you have an opportunity here to address this. Well, I got a response um, or I didn't get a personal response to that letter. The response to that letter, which is how I should frame in that, was basically that they gave him new clothes immediately, but they also gave everyone else on the tier brand new clothes and, you know, replaced everything. And then it, it was just like a shift. So I think that oftentimes people think that it requires some kind of supernatural or superhuman power or some kind of, you know, mystical insight into what's happening in prisons when all it is is really paying attention and just basically saying, you're not going to fuck with me. Like, you can right. keep trying, but I'm going to keep coming back at you. And that's that's what they don't like. They don't like that we keep coming back and keep coming back and we're like, okay, that's what you got. Okay, cool. You know, we're going to we're going to keep moving here because the goal is to get people free, right? Mm-hmm. Their goal is to keep fucking with people. And mm-hmm. it's like right. And right now, you know, in the age of COVID, it's like you understand that the prisoners conditions are the conditions of everyone that comes in contact with those prisoners. Like mm-hmm. is what part of that is not clear to people? Part of what you're articulating um, is the importance of standing up to the bully. Yeah. And exposing the bully. You got You got. If you don't stand up to the bully, the bully is going to devour you. But it doesn't take a lot to stand up to the bully because ultimately the bully is, is a coward. So as you were speaking, I was thinking about what happened that night. I was in this meeting, the Zoom meeting, realizing that this had been a hoax, uh, trying to regain my composure. Uh, We decided at the meeting that we were going to have a press conference the next day, but that we would immediately demand that Mumia call one of us. And we now had the recording. We didn't know that the recording existed until the Zoom meeting. Mm-hmm. And uh, so while the Zoom meeting was going on, I literally removed myself from it and I called the prison, talked to the person who picked up, who was probably the same person who lied to one of our supporters. And I ripped him a new asshole and said, I have a recording here of you or one of your colleagues saying that Mumia was deathly ill and had been rushed to the hospital. If you do not immediately put me in touch with him, I will release this to the media. Mumia called in 15 minutes. And 
you know what the rules are yeah. like in, in yeah. prison. You can't just make a call, at least not mm -hmm. in Mumia's prison. You got to sign up the day before. There are 15 minute slots. If Mumia gets, you know, the, the sheet at the end of the day, he gets to call at some weird hour. And in this COVID-19 moment, at least in Pennsylvania, I don't know what it's like in Delaware, the prisoners are only allowed 45 minutes out of their cell. And during the 45 minutes, they have to do everything. They have to take a shower, make a call, download messages onto their tablets and clean their huts is what mm -hmm. they call them, their cells. Mm -hmm. And Mumia's 45 minutes had come and gone because he, in fact, had called me earlier that morning. So you don't get two calls. Yeah. You don't get two calls during this. So, and, and so because we, we protested and because we threatened them, uh, yeah, they, they had Mumia, Mumia called and, and that was the call that then I recorded and I connect, patched him into zoom. I don't know if you heard it, but he, he talked to, um, everybody who was on that call, but yeah, I think it's very simple. The issue of, um, of, of, of showing up for prisoners, uh, you show up for prisoners by calling by writing a letter and by showing up and saying, I'm not going to allow the terror to happen in the shadows. Mm -hmm. I'm going to bear witness to it and I'm going to call it out. I, I think you're absolutely right that it, it's not magic. It's not rocket science. It's common sense um, showing up, bearing witness, saying um, no to terror and to injustice. Yeah. But you got to be consistent about it. Yeah. Well, this, and, and that's the, where the organizing comes yeah. in because you have to be, it has to be connected to other people, right? Mm -hmm. It has to be connected with other people so that those people can also make calls and encourage other people to do the same, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, that's the thing that changes um, the dynamic, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, I, I've had people, you know, um, contact me over the last, you know, month or so and, and saying, you know, oh, well, I, you know, I'd already written to the governor or whatever. And I'm like, your one letter is not the same as 300, 400 or more of us writing mm -hmm. at the same time. Right. It's like, that puts it on their radar in a way that your one letter may get dismissed. Right. So, I mean, you know, the, the advantage that I had was that I, I do have that organizing background. I also have the stubborn ass personality where it's like, no, <laughs> you're telling me no, or you're ignoring me. And it has something to do with, you know, someone I love. I'm coming after you. Like mm -hmm. I'm coming after you. But I think also, you know, I, it, my, my, doctoral work was on reentry. I focused on, you know, what happened in communities um, as a result of, you know, constant churning in and out of prison and, and all of those things. And I focused that work on Delaware. So I know the ins and outs of that system. I know the politics in Delaware. I know the politicos in Delaware in ways that they probably wish that I didn't. So that, I think, 
changed um, or changes things a little bit. And I share that not because people need to do or be all of those things, but to say, yes, I realized that that gave me a slight, you know, maybe leg up in terms of how I was approaching it. But again, you know, it's like we've created, you know, we created a website, we've created models, we've created phone scripts and put out actions and all of these things. And you don't have to be any of those things. You don't have to be a college professor to do this kind of work. If you have a loved one inside and, you know, they're being denied medical treatment or what have you, you know, it's like, pick up the phone. If you don't know who to call, you can contact us, you know, um, and we get people who are contacting us all the time to tell us about, you know, the, the different conditions. And we did put together a resource guide so that if folks are interested in supporting prisoners right now during this crisis, that there are things that people can do, very practical things like, you know, making sure people have money on their phones. Like we've recognized, we understand that, you know, giving GTL and Securus and these other companies money at this moment is you know, it is ridiculous. So we're demanding free calls for everybody and not just free five minute calls once a week, which is what they're doing in Delaware, but <laughs> free calls all the time, all the time. So it's not, you know, whatever ground we gain during this time is not ground that we need to seed once this crisis is over. And that's the message. And I don't think that that comes from having a lot of experience or being in a certain position or whatever, I think that that's just regular folks getting together and saying enough is enough. We're not going to let you treat our loved ones like this. Um, I, I spent my entire day today, most of the day yesterday and pretty much every day since this, this whole thing started taking calls from people. Right. Mm -hmm. In the last few days, people are like, I want you to record the call. I want to, you know, I want to tell my story and we're getting, we're getting a lot of stories from people on the inside that are just devastating. You know, people that are ready to get out in or are set to get out in June are being held in, in work release. And in Delaware, at least um, if they test positive with COVID, they're being sent back to prison. Right. So they're being sent back <laughs> to a facility that has COVID. Right. It's like, Oh my God, it just, it, it boggles the mind. It really mm -hmm. does. Yeah. I mean, I'm, as I'm listening to you speak, I'm thinking that, um, I'm just thinking about the situation in Ohio mm -hmm. where it's like ground zero for COVID infection in Ohio prisons the world over. Like yeah. it's the highest, the highest rate of, of COVID-19 infection in the world is in an Ohio prison where 30% in Ohio, 30% of the cases are of prisoners or people in prison and staff members. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking about the first folks who died here in New York City in Rikers Island, both of them, a man by the name of Mike Tyson and another man whose last name is Rivera. They were both jailed on a parole violation. They didn't commit a crime. Yeah. And they mm -hmm. died of COVID-19. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's how, it's like, who are we? What 
barbarism um, is, is this. Um, and the stats in New York is, are crazy. Like there are 5,000 people in New York jails that are there on some random technical violation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. And Cuomo just won't let them go because the fraternal order of police and the police benevolent association um, and the guards associations um, are not, are not having it. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is the question that is being asked. What's going on? Why aren't these people being released? Even their people in government are saying that we need to decarcerate people over the age of 50 have to go home. People who are immunocompromised, but nothing is being done because this is the the, the question of the century. What's going on here? And a young activist uh, suggested to me this morning, in fact, that that the issue in New York State, at least, is that the guards and their associations have an enormous amount of power. Mm-hmm. Um, they are connected to families who vote upstate. Yep, and they don't want to, to and they don't want to decarcerate because that's going to affect their jobs. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they're going to mm-hmm. vote. Literally. Yep. Incarceration is the third largest employer. Mass incarceration is the third largest employer in the United States, second to Walmart and Manpower Inc. This Mm. in a country that calls itself the land of the free. Mm. Yep. You know, this raises another thing that I I was wondering if, um, if we wanted to discuss here. And you know, thinking about Mumia's case in particular, not just this incident, but the last several years, it brings to mind how health and health care are weaponized as part of the punishment uh, for prisoners. And whether that be like the actual denial of treatment or, you know, in this and other cases, the obfuscation or the manipulation around somebody's condition and whether they're being treated and how they're being treated and how they're doing the inability to get in touch with people. There's a lot of different ways, you know, Kim, you mentioned people in work release getting sent back if they're testing positive. I think there's a lot of different ways to look at health and your health condition as manipulated or used by the punishment bureaucracy against people and against the people on the outside who support them. And I know, like I was saying, I know that this has sort of come up many times over the years with Mumia's health and his health care needs. And I was just wondering, you know, if you wanted to talk about that at all as someone who's supported him and worked in solidarity with him or even just more broadly about the, the way that Pennsylvania or other prison systems are using these health crises against prisoners actively. Well, you know, I've been thinking about this and I think we have to say that the policies we're seeing across the country in prisons is not unlike the strategy of Nazis who deployed disease um, in concentration camps. 
as a kind of um, uh, tool of terror. It's like uh, death by disease. That's what it looks like. It's um, this is what's difficult about this moment that in many ways the country is divided certainly, and there are um, marginal people who are protesting in the capitals of states across the country against physical distancing. But what we're also seeing is that this moment of mass deaths that are visible, mass deaths that are visible, and that can be linked to something that we sort of know, COVID-19, is in many ways humanizing huge swaths of the country. Like health puts us in touch with um with our mortality and ultimately with our humanity and people are coming together and saying i love you and calling friends that they haven't in forever and saying how are you doing are you staying safe you kind of get a sense of the magnitude um but also the fleeting character of life on the outside, but on the inside, in prisons, it's the opposite. It's a callous disregard for life that, again, shocks the conscience. And that, as you say, Brian, the state is now weaponizing. I just read that in prisons across the country, for the first time, Prisoners are being surveilled and their calls for conversations about COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And we under, know that that's going to be weaponized. Under the guise that it's to help contain the virus. Uh-huh. When we know sure. that that's not <laughs> the case. <laughs> totally. <laughs> the virus. <laughs> You wouldn't have them in prison in the first place. And this is something that I've been writing about. My gosh, it just, it really just, like, I just want to slam things around when I see people just parroting the line that officials, you know, uh, DOC officials and government officials are basically, uh, you know, saying all the time. This idea that somehow prisons are better equipped to handle a fucking global pandemic when hospitals can't like how like on like in what parallel universe are you having to operate to have the audacity to say that to let that come out of your mouth you know as if the rest of us aren't clear on what is going on here Mm -hmm. I, i literally had four phone calls back to back today you know and Every single one of those people was calling to tell me, look, I have, you know, two years left. I have, you know, I'm supposed to get out this year. I have a friend who's supposed to get out soon, et cetera, et cetera. Telling me that they are so afraid of what's going on that they fear that they're going to die. And they're like, 
I've served my time. I'm, you know, in work release. I'm supposed to go home soon. I've done everything right. I can't get bleach to clean my cell because they think, you know, somehow that bleach is going to be used against the guards and there's going to be a riot or God knows what. They're not allowed to use masks. They got gloves, but the gloves don't mean anything because, you know, you can't, it's like you're not social distancing in prison and on and on and on. I got a call and we're going to release this call in probably in the next couple of days from someone who had been assaulted, physically assaulted a couple of weeks ago in the prison and was refused treatment and was told that they would not get that treatment until this crisis is over. This is someone with a bruised rib with black eyes and, and bruises all over their bodies. And they're not going to, what? What? Mm-hmm. These aren't stories that we're making up. It's like we have people that are telling us, you know, this is what is happening to me. And the deep investment that people have in, you know, in cops in this country, right? Including a lot of people that have people in prison, right? Right. They're like, well, you did, you know, they say you did the crime, you got to do the time and bullshit like that. There's not like a, a deep interrogation of what is happening and the belief that somehow officials are telling us the truth and that prisoners are all lying. Like that is such a fucking problem. And no amount of evidence for some people will ever be sufficient. They don't care if these people die. That's part of it. Like they actually don't care if these people die. And that's something that I feel, you know, like I feel that in my fucking, in my marrow, right? Mm-hmm. With, you know, having two sons in there, but pretty much like all of their friends, like everybody they know that's in there. And all of the other people that I know around the country that are incarcerated, that I'm connected to. These people don't care if they die because they know that they're going to continue to fill up these prisons and they're continuing to arrest people. And continuing right. to fill up these prisons. And it's like, we have, we need the movement to really step up and demand that we stop doing these things, right? That we stop, you know, arresting people on bullshit charges. Anybody that's in jail right now needs to go, needs to go. All of these pretrial, like we need mass decarceration without all of the contingencies, Right. <laughs> Without right. saying right. that there's only right. certain categories of people that we people, feel no, absolutely. Right. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, if if we think about the the buildup of mass incarceration over the last 50 years, that half the people imprisoned were unemployed at the time of their imprisonment, that the other half had an average salary of $10,000 at the time of their imprisonment, that mass incarceration targeted certain communities and not others and Mm -hmm. imprisoned people over bullshit. Every way we look at it, that, that imprisonment and the carceral state became the new jobs program for rural districts across the country that were experiencing deindustrialization. This was an unadulterated war against a class and race of Americans. 
And I'm thinking about Malcolm X's quote. If you stick a knife into me seven inches and remove it four, you're not doing me any favors. Exactly. That's not a favor. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. Yeah. I mean, the real criminals, the real dangerous people in this society are Trump and the ruling class. Yeah. I mean, those are, that's a threat to society, a real significant threat to society and to the world. I'm thinking about the millions of people who were killed in the multiple wars that were launched in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and the horror that is our healthcare system, which is organized around profit and private medicine and has complete disregard for communal health. And so many people are just allowed to die. Like no, no one's, no one's, in, I'm here in New York. I, I, I don't know. We've lost over 15,000 people in New York City alone. 15,000 people in New York City alone. My sister-in-law is a surgeon and she is, she's devastated. Her colleague, in fact, just died of COVID-19. No, and my, my, my sister-in-law is a black woman. She's not, she's a, she's a surgeon in a ruling class hospital Mm -hmm. um, in Long Island. Uh, but this society is not even protecting the people who are charged with caring for the ill. And it doesn't care. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I want to underscore that point because I think this is very crucial in connecting, you know, both what you were just saying, Kim, and what you were just saying, Johanna in terms of the caveats and letting people out and all this concern of, oh, you're going to let out, you know, dangerous people. The ruling classes, you just said, Johanna, I wouldn't even say that they let people die. They actively killed people, confiscating, you know, PPE as it was trying to get Mm -hmm. into different states by, you know, selling off the national stockpile of ventilators or sending it in very specific places. And I think that this gets to the crux of how law enforcement and incarceration is inherently a political enterprise. You know, mm-hmm. this isn't not this is not something that is built around public safety and preventing violence. It is a maintenance of violence for a few people who have all the power and their ability to use it, use that violence institutionally, like I just said through in this example, facilitating the deaths of thousands, tens of thousands of people in New York City alone by restricting resources and targeting resources in certain places, the police do the same thing. You know, they, they police certain people, they charge certain people, certain ways, you know, that's the why. that's why it's not that black people, Latino people are more violent. They're not committing more crimes. It's that those are the people who we police. Those are the people who we surveil harass. And meanwhile, the for-profit healthcare companies, our political actors can all engage in mass murder freely and nobody even bats an eyelash. So I just, I, I wanted to express that because it absolutely drives me up the wall to hear people respond to calls for public health and safety that involve releasing people from incarceration and 
stopping police patrols and contact with law enforcement with some sort of claim that they're concerned about violence and, and so on and so forth. When right behind all of like right in front of all of us, there is enormous, massive violence that is taking place and nobody can seem to locate any sort of problem with the fact that those people aren't being charged with murders. Those people aren't being threatened with prosecution or whatever. So I, I just wanted to, to point that out. It's a little bit of a rant. I apologize. No, no, I think that's very, very clear. That's the clarity of that is something that um, we desperately need of, of your statement because ultimately mass incarceration is deeply embedded in the DNA of this country and its consciousness. And what holds it up, what props it up is... Um, is the ideology of safety and law and order and crime mm -hmm. and responsibility, yep. um, individual responsibility and the hell with, you know, the collective violence that, that we are subjected to day in and day out, as you, as you mentioned. And I, I think it's important to add this dimension to, to, to the conversation and reinforce the question, what, so what is the purpose of incarceration? If it's not about stopping crime or, or safety, as you said, it's a political endeavor. Historically, prisons in the United States, in China, in Rome, <laughs> uh, in Puerto Rico, in Chile, it's a, it's a tool of social control. It's, mm -hmm. Uh, it's a way to control the people at the bottom of society, to keep people in their place, to it's 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 a means of um, deploying fear. And in the post-civil rights movement era, part of what we see, and you are probably familiar with these statistics, is that we see the largest transfer of wealth that has ever happened in human history. And that transfer of wealth happened from the bottom up. It went from the bottom of society to the top. And according to um, a Harvard economist who was writing in the 1990s, in the past, when such a massive transfer of wealth had happened as the one that happened in the United States from the bottom of society to the top, it happened as a result of a military coup or a revolution. But in the United States, it happened without a peep. This was the moment when the unions were busted. I don't know if you recall that 10,000 air traffic controllers were fired by Reagan in yeah. 1980 or 1981. The safety net, um, the sorry excuse for a safety net that the United States had um, in the form of some health care, private, of course, that came from employers. That was gotten rid of. Uh, welfare uh, was whittled down. Education was whittled down. Public hospitals were privatized or significantly, their budget significantly reduced. All of the mental health hospitals that were shut down in the 1980s and 90s. So you have this massive evisceration of the gains of working people. And 
nobody is fighting that and everyone is petrified of crime. So that same in that same decade where that study came out that of this massive transfer of wealth without a peep, um, there was a, uh, a seven-part series in the New York Times titled The Downsizing of America. And that New York Times series said that Americans are five times more likely to be the victim of a layoff than a, than a crime. But everyone's, you know, losing their head about crime and law and order. In many ways, the project of neoliberalism and the American state in the last 50 years needed to scapegoat people at the bottom of society, disproportionately black and brown immigrants, scapegoat them for this massive crisis of poverty uh, and unemployment in this country. And they fed this crime and safety ideology. And that's what we're up against now because it's like a religion. Mm. It's this race ideology and law and order and crime and safety. It's like religion. No amount of, of rational argumentation is penetrates people Mm -hmm. as as kim suggested it's it's yeah it's yeah it's deep in 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 the marrow of american culture and american society but we have to um we that's the that's the assignment like how do we expose and fight that race ideology absolutely Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just thinking, and actually, uh, I was jotting down as you were both talking, because this is something that I'd just written about the other day, was about the management, control, and surveillance of certain groups of people in this country, and the targeting of some communities as opposed to others, and how we're creating and have created over you know the last 30, 40 years, a class of people that we really do treat as it's not even second class citizens because they don't have many of them don't have the right to vote many of them don't have mm-hmm. you know many of the different things that we quote unquote consider as part of citizenship but putting a pin on that momentarily the point that you were making Johanna about this the the mentality the mindset of you know of people and the way that i think about this is that those of us that are involved in this struggle and that are looking towards abolition and working um, in that project, that the cultural work that we need to engage in and that we need to do mm-hmm. has to be, you know, <laughs> I, I maybe this is controversial to say, I don't know, but I, I feel like it has to move outside of our spaces so that the same way that people turn on and watch all of these shitty shows about what's happening in prison or what they think is happening in prison, you know, on CNN and whatever the hell else other network is airing that crap, that they're not hearing a counter, they're not seeing a counter to that, that there's no counter argument, counter narrative to those things. And when when we say, you know, and I've had this, I've had this discussion with folks, including people inside 
who pushed back against, Mm -hmm. you know, abolition. And they're like, what do you mean abolition? You want everybody to get out? And I'm like, yeah, actually, yeah, that's really what, you know, what I'm saying, at least. And they're like, no, 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 you can't mean that. You must be confused somehow. So the cultural work of they've done they've done a very good job of laying the groundwork over so many decades of you know everything from America's most wanted to cops to whatever mm-hmm. other shows like even you know sitcoms like every it, you cannot turn on a television netflix or whatever without a true crime story or this or that or the other it's in everything even in our entertainment right? Like even in our entertainment, that's cultural work right there, right? Right. It's like, it's the way that these messages get deployed in a society that people consume this stuff passively, or they're like, oh, well, that's just jokes or whatever. And without thinking it, but this is where we come up against this kind of resistance where we say, yeah, we need people to get out. And they're like, well, wait a minute, hold on. You're trying. You're going a little bit too far. You know, it's like, good lord. I, uh, just one example, um, quickly is just log on to any community board. The community boards, neighborhood watch groups, and even if they're not calling themselves neighborhood watch groups now, with you know, um, next door. The, yeah. Oh my god, they're the worst. Like, <laughs> I can't. I can't even. Right. It's like everything is it's racist, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's targeting young people. It's it, it, like, watch out. Like you have to be afraid. Like, you know, you can't go out. I saw something, someone posted something not long ago about, you know, being followed by someone, you know, down the street who was obviously having either in crisis or on the verge of a crisis and, you know, was screaming at this person, right? All kinds of things. And, you know, they're posting that, you know, as if to say that that person is the problem. And I get it. Like, you might feel like in that moment that your safety is threatened. But again, not recognizing like all of the systemic failures that have led to someone not being able to get care, to not being able to get treatment and not care in the form of calling the fucking cops on someone that's having a mental health crisis, right? Because those people usually end up dead, right? And that's been our response. Like, uh, uh, I haven't looked at the stats lately, but many people that are currently incarcerated also have a mental health condition, right? And that is some, this is, you know, prisons have become the mental health hospitals. So- Reagan closed them down, we deinstitutionalized, and now we have, this is, this was the response. And I don't know, I I just, I feel like, I didn't have a question there. I was just, (laughs) just, no, um, you know, I, we've been talking a lot about the ways in which the system shocks the conscience, the ways in which the vulnerability of our bodies to disease and illness is weaponized in prison. And that's shocking. But it shouldn't shock us because what the hell did we expect? Mm -hmm. These institutions are about uh, mean, vindictive, 
social control and terrorism against the people at the bottom of society. But we also live in a system, generally speaking, that has absolutely no concern for human life. It's organized around profit, not human need, right? At the broadest levels. So, yeah, I mean, this, I kind of feel like we need to be more commonsensical about this. Like, yeah, uh uh-huh. This is, this is the logical conclusion of living in this kind of a system. Mm -hmm. And the people who are living in absolute unfreedom, those people are going to be dispensable Mm -hmm. in a crisis like this one. Our system is going to want to get rid of them. Mm -hmm. Our system is almost, is calling for genocide, Mm -hmm. right? That's what's happening. No one's moving. No one is moving a pinky to let anybody out of jail with any quickness. Mm -hmm. So in, in the context of certain death, of deaths foretold, that's, that's the, that's where we are. We are seeing the reality and, and we, I think, we have a choice as humanity right now. Mm-hmm. In what direction do we want to go? Absolutely. I I wanted to um, bring bring the conversation back to Mumia for a moment. I know that you are helping to organize a teach-in this coming weekend, if I'm not mistaken. And I, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about that, what it will be, why it's important, anything that you wanted to say about that. Yeah, so we're organizing a teach-in this Friday. It's actually a series of events. This Friday, April 24th, is the day of Mumia's birthday. On the day before, which is tomorrow, Thursday, the 23rd of April, we're having a press conference on the latest legal developments in Mumia's case. Uh, The teach-in is a magnificent event that we're titling U.S. Empire v. Political Prisoners. And our objective is really to call attention to the demand for decarceration and abolition in this period, but also to amplify the condition of political prisoners in American prisons, but also in prisons around the world. And Angela Davis, Alice Walker, Vijay Prashad, Mark Lamont Hill, the fired Amazon worker, Estela Vasquez, who's a member of Local 1199, the major health and hospitals union in the country. And by the way, the fired Amazon worker, his name is Chris Smalls. Laura Whitehorn, former political prisoner. Susan Rosenberg, another former political prisoner. Kathy Boudin. Notice how I'm naming women here because the women are never mentioned, but there were quite a number of female political Mm -hmm. prisoners. They will be, they will be present, including Angela Davis. They will be at this event speaking truth to power. These are radicals. It's been historically radicals who've, who fought for a new vision of society a radical transformation of society. And in my book, 
radicals are are the folks who address the root causes of social problems and who imagine and call for and envision equally transformative reorganization or deep radical reorganization of society. So the question that we pose to the many, many folks who are going to speak from 6 to 9 p.m. on April 24th at this teaching is speak on um, the condition of political imprisonment. What is it? What has it been in history? Uh, what are its ca root causes? And what does this moment need? What is this moment calling on us to do to build a different world? So yeah, we're asking people to come out. Uh, you can go to Eventbrite and just type in U.S. Empire v. Political Prisoners and register. And we're also having a dance party on Saturday night, Saturday the 25th, which we're calling, calling Mumia Libre. And, and we're also having, finally, on Sunday, a 24-hour reading of Mumia's work, which we're calling Poetry in Motion. And this is our contribution to this period of crisis. Of course, we're organized in the defense of Mumia, but ultimately, I like to think that we're really organized to, to transform society fundamentally. And I like to say always that Angela Davis has said that the reason why the problem of incarceration is important and is captivating for those of us who, who do work on it, like I'm just been doing this work for a very long time and, and I'm constantly drawn back to it because incarceration raises questions about the very org organization of society. Mm -hmm. Like what kind of society do you want to live in? Do you want to live in a society that throws people away? Uh, so yes. Yeah, so please join us at these incredible events, press conference on the 23rd, teaching on the 24th, party with us on Saturday, the 25th and poetry in motion on the 26th. It's about building a culture of resistance. That's what we're trying to do. But part of what we need to do, as Kim suggested, is engage the battle of ideas, which is everywhere in our culture. We need to replace those insane ideas with, with more humane ones. And I, when we were speaking earlier, I wanted to talk about this idea of solidarity because the, the 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 work around prisoners is hard especially the work around political prisoners because when you defy the state the state nails you to the wall and throws away the key mm -hmm. it's hard work but ultimately standing up for people who who society has attempted to make invisible, standing side by side with the most demeaned of our society, I mean, is the ultimate sign of solidarity, human solidarity.
And I say standing side by side because there are prisoners rioting all around the country right now. Like prisoners are defending themselves. And they're doing shit that I couldn't imagine doing or surviving through. But in this work, what I've learned, and I think in all movement work, is that that no one is going to do anything by themselves. Like, Mm -hmm. human beings have not gotten to where we are on, you know, the merits of our individual actions. Mm -hmm. We've survived as a species through collective action. And collaboration. And so that's ultimately what solidarity is about. It's and and the thing is that this society, capitalism, is organized against the notion that solidarity and collaboration is what is gonna save us. So solidarity, I want to end with solidarity because the health crisis that we're in is bringing us back to this issue of solidarity. Even though we're isolated in our apartments, we need each other. Mm-hmm. We, need the hos- we need the hospitals, we need the doctors, we need the nurses, we need the janitors. We need the people who are, continue to cook. And we, we, are, we are interdependent. And, and and solidarity is this very complex emotion. It's it's the embodiment and the embodied knowledge that we are not alone in our struggles, that there are many on our side, and that together we can change things. And we can change things that alone we could never imagine changing. Could not happen. And so when our people in prison are being messed with, with the state, we need to call on our next door buddy and be like, you know what? This shit is going down. Let's go make a call. I need you to show up with me at the prison and let's get, you know, our friends doing the same thing and calling. That's like the essence and the, seed and the genesis of um of living differently in the world yeah Mm -hmm. absolutely well johanna i want to say uh thank you so much for joining us today this has been a tremendous conversation um i appreciate everything you said um the work that you do um Mm -hmm. It's just uh, incredible. And uh, I know our friends over at um, Millennials for Killing Capitalism had you on to talk about your book um, not long ago, but we'd love to have you back um, to talk about the book as well. <laughs> once this uh, once this stuff settles down a little bit, hopefully it settles down. I wanted to also say thank you um, for your work and for joining us. I really appreciate it. 